Hello, welcome to the Dear Writer podcast. I'm Sarah. And I'm Ashley. We're two aspiring collaborative authors sharing our writing journey with you. The ups, the downs, and everything in between. Whether you're just starting out or a more experienced writer, we hope that you'll find this podcast inspiring and thought-provoking. And here's the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Dear Writer. Today, we're recording episode 91, and it's one of our Talking Shop episodes. Uh, And like all of these short episodes, we should jump straight into it so we don't run out of time. Sarah, what's your tool of the month this month? So this month I have returned to a resource that I have talked about previously um, on one of our Talking Shop episodes. But last time I mentioned this series, it was some time ago, we focused on just sort of one episode. So this writing resource that I've chosen is Writing Great Fiction. It's episode seven and eight that I'm going to focus on this time, which is the mechanics of dialogue and integrating dialogue into narrative. And yeah, so last time we focused on episode one, which was all about setting out on your writing journey. And this time I decided to focus on a specific part in sort of writing dialogue. So for those of you who didn't listen to the previous episode or who have maybe forgotten a little bit, um, The Writing Great Fiction is a lecture series with the author and creative writing instructor, James Hines, and it aims to educate people on how to write great fiction, as kind of indicated by the title. Episode 7 was about the mechanics of dialogue, and rather than talking about the nuances of dialogue, it focused on sort of the bare basics of it and I would recommend this episode to anyone who is fresh to writing and wanting to learn the rules of dialogue or perhaps if you need a brush up on the basic grammar and purposes of dialogue and fiction. Sounds like a good way to cover your bases at the start. Yeah. Come across a lot of um, especially editing the um, anthology of short stories for our writing group people should definitely um, take a take a look at a basic um, dialogue resource. <laughs> yeah. Be very helpful. Well, I, I'll start with kind of my overall thoughts on it because my overall feelings about these episodes were kind of mixed because it was, was quite basic, I felt. Like I think it could be really useful if you aren't great with dialogue or grammar because, you know, I have read some stuff and like from some people who I think they really could do with a bit more of like a a basic handle on these are quotation marks. (laughs) You use them around when people are talking directly. (laughs) Um, Like just a really bog standard basic stuff. And so if you, or if you need a bit of a reminder about how best to use it and the usual conventions of dialogue, I think it would be helpful. But I will say compared to some of the other lectures I listened to in the series earlier, I was a little disappointed by his discussion of dialogue and I feel it does cater to a very beginner writer. And I didn't really feel like I learned anything new from it. Mm-hmm. Um I am utilizing more hands-free methods of learning about writing, such as through audiobooks and video um, at the moment, because 
having a little one, it's just easier. Like I can then listen or watch something while I'm feeding her or so that kind of works well for me at the moment. So I will probably continue to watch the remainder of the series and I'm interested to see what James Hines thoughts are on character and plot, but for the dialogue, I would say it's quite sort of a basic, a basic outline of it. And if you wanted to learn more about it, you'd probably have to go more into grammar books and like the kind of really nuancey kind of stuff um, and maybe look at a few other writing books. So it, the first episode, well, the episode eight that I watched, it honed in on some of the reasons for punctuating dialogue, which was to one, set the dialogue apart from the rest of the text, and number two, to identify who is speaking. So those are pretty much the reasons why you use dialogue. I think it's particularly to identify who is speaking, like that part of it, I think some people might find his explanation of attributions kind of helpful because, you know, like there are pieces of fiction that you read sometimes and it, they haven't put enough attributions in maybe or something mm -hmm. like that um, where you're reading and you're kind of like, hang on a second, who is speaking again? And by the time you get down to like the fifth sort of new line you're like I can't remember who's speaking now <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> so that kind of thing like he describes about like when is appropriate to use dialogue tags or attributions and when you maybe want to be a li little bit more light-handed about it mm -hmm. um and he also identified three major rules of dialogue and he recognized that though, like everything, there are exceptions to the rules, but if you aren't a well-known author, like some of the authors are who have taken a sort of different approach to it, like, you know, using a dash instead of quotation marks at the start of dialogue, for example, um, you're probably better to stick to the usual conventions Sound advice, I think. <laughs> yes. Number one, all direct quotes should be set apart by quotation marks. And number two, new speakers should be set apart by paragraph rate. So new line, new speaker. And number three, quotations begin with a capital letter. So if you don't know that, then you should probably pick up a grammar book, <laughs> I think. So an episode... Eight, integrating dialogue into a narrative, things get a little bit more interesting. This lecture was devoted to the more than nuances of including dialogue within your manuscripts, such as how to use dialogue to evoke character, um, how to use it to move the plot forward as a counterpoint to action and to provide exposition with examples of each in some famous works. He talked about how subtext can be provided through character thoughts and actions. And sometimes characters discussing the most banal of things can actually go a long way in creating an undercurrent of tension when we as the readers are aware of what isn't being said. Um, and he admitted that when it comes to exposition, although you can provide exposition through dialogue if you're crafty, he feels this is tricky to do without sounding a little bit clunky. Um, these are my words, not his. Mm -hmm. 
and suggested that it might be better interwoven with the rest of the story a few chapters into the book. And so that was is kind of like a summary of the two lectures that I watched. Um, he did describe a bit more about like how to do it and sort of how to put it all together and things like that. Um, but it is quite a short and sweet episodes. They're each, I think, about 30 minutes in length. So it's not like a full hour where you sit down and for a lecture or anything like that. Yeah. And that's quite a good not, time. Yeah, yeah. It is nice to to kind of like just watch a, a short thing and be like, okay, this is a great reminder on this kind of thing. That was writing great fiction a lecture series by James Hines and episodes seven and eight, the mechanics of dialogue and integrating dialogue into a narrative. So what was your tool of the month this month, Ashley? Well, this month I stuck with the same writing resource I used last month, which was the writing experiment strategies for innovative creative writing by Hazel Smith. Um, I'll read a tiny bit of the blurb in case uh, you didn't listen to our last episode. So the writing experiment demystifies the process of creative writing, showing that successful work does not arise from talent or inspiration alone. Hazel Smith breaks down writing into incremental stages, revealing processes that are often unconscious or unacknowledged and shows that they can become part of a systematic writing strategy. Last time I covered chapter two which was entitled genre as a movable feast and this time I thought we would look at chapter four writing as recycling I was going to do one of the advanced techniques but they were very complex (laughs) probably too complex to try and describe over a podcast (laughs) so I picked another one of her beginning um, techniques because they seemed quite fun And we'd kind of done a version of one of the exercises before, sort of, um, and had talked about loosely writing as recycling in the past. So kind of linked together. This chapter basically was investigating how authors can use other people's texts in creative ways to enhance their own. And she says it's correlated with a concept called intertextuality I was like oh (laughs) interesting Um, which uh, I guess the quote that goes with that is no text is ever completely new original or independent writers are always to some degree reinventing what has already been written Um, I think in a previous uh, talking shop I talked about a book that was all about like steal not stealing other people's writing but like a lot of your ideas have come from things that are already written so they're mm-hmm. not entirely original. This is kind of feeding off of that. She describes, which I found quite funny, she describes the process of writing like paper recycling. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, so where authors reinvent what they've read or watched or listened to and like sort of like reshape it into another form. And I was like, hmm, I could see that. <laughs> yeah. So I quite liked that way of thinking about it 
she then goes on to say that basically everything we've read before influences whether we know it or don't know it, uh, everything that we're writing now and that we're basically scavenging things we've read, watched, listened to in the past and then, you know, within our own creative process, churning out something original for us. And she uses this chapter to focus on ways to use other texts to help generate new ideas and trigger them through different writing exercises. So there's three writing exercises that she suggests that you can try. The first one she calls cutting it with collages. It just <laughs> sounds fun. It does. So basically she suggests making a literary collage. And I was like, oh, that sounds really enjoyable. This kind of reminded me a little bit of um, like a hybrid between like the blackout poetry we've done before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the mood board. <laughs> so in a literary collage you take pieces of text so words phrases sentences sometimes whole paragraphs if you want from a a variety of different sources and then you juxtapose them all together so the challenge is pulling words from their original environment putting them into a new context and then trying to I guess link ideas and give them new meaning Mm mm-hmm she just she explains that it is the juxtaposition in this exercise that is the most important part of the collage so trying to give ideas that aren't usually connected room to gel together without having to be you know seamlessly joined like you would do when you're writing Mm -hmm. Uh, and she actually explained that one of T.S. Eliot's poems uh, Wasteland is actually a type of collage Uh, literary collage because even though he's like written a lot of the poem himself he's inserted references from religious texts and also mythological texts to like make his poem so that's like an actual example of a literary collage (laughs) (laughs) and she does say there are two stages to doing the collage so the in the first stage you know, you choose your phrases and sentences and words and stick them all together and try and try and link the ideas. And then once that once that's complete, you then rewrite your collage as like prose or poetry. So you can either cut up your collage again and like re-stick it. Um, <laughs> or you can like cut out words or like maybe add a word here or there to make it flow a bit better. So then you'll end up with oh yeah, two collages, one that you've kind of rewritten. Um, to flow better in the other original um, collage. It sounded quite fun. So so maybe we should try that at some point for our culture and creativity. That's what I was thinking as you were describing this. I was like, huh, yeah, here's an idea for later. Put Mm -hmm. that into the the vault. (laughs) Well, there's a couple. um, The next one that I'm going to talk about is also quite amusing. So we could potentially try that as well. So the second exercise she called shake the foundations but like found is in like quotation marks and it's a technique for creating found texts the basic premise I found this hilarious is you take something that has a non-literary function like a recipe or an instruction manual and then you turn it into something literary like a poem um, oh, yum. So, yeah so an instruction manual could be interesting. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and when you're doing these types of found uh, found text, you're not supposed to modify it heavily. So you're only meant to do like slight modifications that like you can tweak the grammar, adding line breaks, uh, you know, kind of setting the, the pacing and the rhythm a little bit if you're trying to make a poem. Mm-hmm. One of the examples they had was someone who made found poetry from a blank diary. <laughs> and so the lines were like, today is my birthday. Wednesday <laughs> is mom's birthday. Tomorrow is dad's birthday. And then it was like, tomorrow is, tomorrow is, tomorrow is. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> it cracked me up. So <laughs> it's funny. So that's, that's great. A, another potential um, exercise for finding found texts. That could be quite fun. We could we could try that on an instruction manual. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the final yeah. one was that she talked about is one that uh, probably everyone's heard before, but it was just interesting to see the reasons behind it. So that was recycling is rewriting so rewriting like classic texts or fairy tales which you know people do quite often Mm -hmm. um and she did say that the important thing about doing this type of exercise is that you make sure you tell the story from a different perspective whether it's like a contemporary perspective or a feminist perspective or even like a colonial perspective or from a different character um and she suggests that you should choose an older text because the main objective of it is to think about the ways that attitudes and mindsets have changed over time and that's one of the big yeah. benefits of doing it so if you're one of those people who really enjoys rewriting of fairy tales just keep that in mind um so that was basically the the chapter it sounded really fun yeah, it was. I really liked the collage and the found texts. Very amusing. Yes. So, yeah, so that was chapter four, writing as recycling from the book, The Writing Experiment, Strategies for Innovative Creative Writing by Hazel Smith. So we should probably move on to what we've been reading for fun this month, Sarah. For fun this month, I have been reading or rather listening to an audiobook by the name of These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong, talking about redoing an old tale. It's a retelling of Romeo and Juliet uh, for young adults, and it is set in Shanghai in the 20s. Oh, cool. Yeah, found it slightly disappointing from some perspectives right (laughs) I'm not sure if it's just me though because I have to say that I am not the best at listening to audiobooks I find it really hard to understand what's going on as I'm a very visual person so I kind of tune out and then I'm like what sorry what happened (laughs) so it has to be a really great book to capture my interest enough for me to follow it right and uh, I'll read the, the blurb um, and then I'll say kind of why I think I'm not 100% riveted by it. Yeah. So the year is 1926 and Shanghai hums to the tune of debauchery. A blood feud between two gangs runs the streets red, 
leaving the city helpless in the grip of chaos. At the heart of it all is 18-year-old Juliette Kai, a former flapper who has returned to assume her role as the proud heir to the Scarlet Gang, a network of criminals far above the law. The only rivals in power are the White Flowers, who have fought the Scarlets for generations. And behind every move is their heir, Roma Montagov, Juliet's first love and first betrayal. But when the gangsters on both sides show signs of instability culminating in clawing their own throats out, the people start to whisper of a contagion, a madness, of a monster in the shadows. As the deaths stack up, Juliet and Roma must set their guns and grudges aside and work together, for if they can't stop this mayhem, then there will be no city left for either to rule. Oh, interesting. Sounds like it's got a little bit of an extra dimension sort of to the story. Yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, this will be interesting. This sounds kind of fun. And it has been okay. I think my main issue with it is that I do not relate to the characters very much at all. Right. I mean, Roma's kind of okay. He's all right. And you can kind of be like, I mean, he seems a bit boring and like maybe uh I kind of want to say that he he's a little bit um like of a bit of a cliched character in some respects so he's all right but he's just like not super interesting Juliet is more interesting however I feel like there's this slight alienation created because she is not a very likable person right (laughs) Like, I'm not sure that she's really, she seems a bit selfish, a bit haughty. She's, like, really (laughs) obsessed with, like, becoming the, like, head honcho of her gang kind of thing. And is not really that much interested in anything that doesn't serve that. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of like, "Mm, I, I just don't really relate to the characters very well in this book. It has an interesting plot line, though. I find the whole monster angle kind of like that. That's a little bit curious yeah, and provokes my imagination a bit because it's like, Oh, what is this like random force that is causing people to rip their throats out? It's kind of, Ooh. it's kind of interesting. So I can, that does, <laughs> it would like raise your curiosity a bit. So I was intrigued, but probably not enough to continue with an audiobook. If it had been like, in my hand like a physical book I probably would have continued but as an audio book I just kind of lost interest because I couldn't follow it it's too easy to turn off as well you're like "Mm, no (laughs) yeah well it's too easy when I'm like feeding my daughter Julia to be like start playing with her instead and then be like oh I missed like five minutes (laughs) (laughs) yeah what happened I'm sorry <laughs> um so there's that I get distracted when I'm listening to audiobooks fair enough <laughs> I think that's like you know a danger of being able to do several things at once with audiobooks right. is that you get kind of into what else you're doing and then mm-hmm. you're like oh no I missed like five minutes of the audiobook and I wasn't paying attention <laughs> I usually listen to audiobooks only in the car ah yeah yeah. See, that wouldn't be as hard because, you know, you're kind of seated in one place. Yeah. <laughs> Although I have tried listening to them driving before. And again, you know, you kind of focus on 
if the road gets a bit busier or something and you have to focus on the road a bit more and then you're suddenly like, oh, <laughs> what happened? So I don't know. Maybe I'm just easily distracted or something. I, <laughs> maybe. But those were my thoughts on it. And again, it was uh, These Violent Delights by Chloe Gong. What was your um, read for the month, Ashley? Well, I'm still reading the same book I was reading last month, which was The Magician by Raymond E. Feist, because it's massive. (laughs) Um, I haven't had a lot of time to read, but I am enjoying it. And although I'm making slow-ish progress, it's not because I'm not liking the plot or anything. It's more of a time thing. So I did think, though, I would mention a movie that I watched recently because it was quite interesting. A while ago, I may have mentioned on here that a couple of my friends and I have been like watching every movie that's been released since we've been born. And that's like still going on in the background. It's very enjoyable, but we haven't come across many good movies at all. There's only been (laughs) like three movies ever that we've given higher than an eight out of 10. So it's rare. (laughs) it's really rare that we find something good and we came across one um oh must have been last week or the week before that we finally gave an eight to it was movie number three we'd given an eight to so I thought I'd talk about that because it is a book adaptation and Uh it has made me really want to read the book now so it was called Dead Calm directed by Philip Noyce and it's based on the novel with the same name by Charles Williams and it starred a very young Sam Neill, a very young Nicole Kidman (laughs) and Billy Zane and those were the only three people in the film and it was a a psychological thriller set on a yacht. So I thought I would read the blurb for the movie and then kind of give you my thoughts about why we enjoyed it so much and why it might be an interesting watch for you. So the blurb goes, Ray Ingram, Nicole Kidman, and her husband, John, Sam Neill, struggle to overcome the sudden death of their young son. In an attempt to move past their loss, the couple take their yacht out for an extended vacation trip. While far out at sea, they come across a sinking schooner and rescue the ship's sole survivor, Huey, who's played by Billy Zane. Huey claims the crew of the ship died from food poisoning. Though Ray is empathetic towards Huey, John is suspicious of his story. So the the whole story takes place uh, on basically on this yacht, and there's only the three of them. And it is what I would call a masterclass in tension building. Like it was one of those movies where you're just like, is he crazy? Is he not crazy? Are they crazy? Are they not crazy? Like what's going to, did he kill everyone on his ship? Did they die of food poisoning? And I don't know uh, for most of the film. So that was quite, quite good. And I'm really keen to see the novel because like the whole dynamic of it obviously must be repeated in the novel because it's very similar. Um, So hope I'm, hoping to track it down they don't have it at my library which is disappointing uh, because I'm very curious to see how the author does it oh that's a shame you know I wanted to read it but that's okay (laughs) I was going to comment that at the end of the movie obviously I won't say what happened um I'm not usually someone who's very vocal in movies but all four of us verbally exclaimed at the end (laughs) so (laughs) 
That's um, funny. Yeah, it was pretty funny. We're like, wow. So it was it was very good and would highly recommend. And it is interesting because it's, it's an obviously like a random Australian psychological thriller. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very good. So it was uh, Dead Calm. Um, so there's the book, which is by Charles Williams, but there's also the film directed by Philip Noyce. So check it out if you feel like a good thriller set on the ocean, weirdly. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so we should probably wrap this episode up. There are still some spots left on our author spotlight section. And if you would like to apply, you can head on over to our website, lindersoncreations.com and hover your mouse over the podcast tab and you should get a drop down menu with a link to apply. And next time on Dear Writer, it's our main podcast where we're going to talk about including diversity in your stories. If you'd like to know any more about us or any of our writing projects, you can visit us on the aforementioned website, lindersoncreations.com, or you can get in contact with us on Facebook or Instagram under the handle lindersoncreations. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on your podcatcher of choice, tell your friends about us, and we'll be back next week. Happy writing, everyone. Mm -hmm.